Hello and welcome to Criticism is Dead, a weekly culture podcast about what we're watching and what it all means, if it means anything at all. I'm Helen Keskin Liu, a producer and writer. I'm Jenny Jijong, a culture writer and critic. And this week we're discussing Nope and Bell, two films that, in all honesty, maybe deserve to be seen on the big screen as opposed yes. to the tiny screen of your laptop. Yes, cinemas, they are good. <laughs> we we love them. How have you been? We we took a break. Yeah, we skipped, I was gallivanting. We skipped last week. Yeah, man. Um, I've been okay. You know, everything same here on the home front. Nice. Um, you, on the other hand, have obviously been traveling a little bit. Yeah, I went to LA Yay. to the sunny West Coast. Not that it's not sunny here in on the East Coast, but it's certainly more and in a better way. It's kinder yes. out there. It's kinder yes. out there. There's a cool breeze from the desert, which we love to feel upon our skin. <laughs> um, it was nice. I, I met with loads of friends. It was great to see a bunch of people that I haven't seen in a long time. It was great to meet new people and like hang out with them for the first time. But yeah, it was really it was really nice. I think I think I might be headed out there soon, so we'll see. Ooh. Yeah, we'll see. California. Yeah. What a what a California. dream. Literally California dream. I know. I know. I felt like Don Draper in Mad Men <laughs> on, on all of his California trips. Yeah. Um great. different person, happier, you know. Yeah. I think all of us, you know, there's some version of us that locked within all of us at one point or another. Yes. <laughs> well, here's to your LA dreams and thank glad you. Glad to have you back for for the show though. Glad to be back. So now that we're back and and we're back in our routine, um I will go ahead and ask you, what did you watch? <laughs> so, I took the opportunity while you were away to watch Nope. I'm so proud of you. I'm yeah. so proud of you. I like, I did it. I, as, as many of you probably know, I don't like quote unquote scary movies, horror movies. Yeah. Um, this wasn't bad, you know? I've seen Get Out. No, it's, it's fine. It's, it's totally, totally doable. It's, it's, yeah. you know, I would be loath to even describe it as like full on horror, but yeah. Yeah. For and, those who don't know, this is Jordan Peele's latest movie. It is technically like a sci fi horror film that he directed, wrote, and co produced. And this is his third film, of course, after Get Out and Us. Um, it was released in late J- July, and now it's playing in you know theaters across the nation or, or whatever. So this film stars Daniel Kaluuya and Kiki Palmer as OJ and Emerald Haywood, two siblings who inherited their family's ranch out in California after their dad died in like a freak incident involving objects falling from the sky. Yeah. Uh, so the two siblings discover a UFO that has been responsible for all sorts of strange goings-on in the valley. And then they decide, instead of like running away for their lives, they actually want to stay and attempt to capture video evidence of the UFO as like the impossible shot and like possibly the answer to their financial problems. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and also it stars Stephen Yun as Jupe, who is a former child actor who now owns like a wild west type tourist attraction in the area. Uh, Brandon Prea is angel, an electronic store, like tech sales person and a UFO obsessive. Uh, and somewhat briefly, Michael Wincott as Holst, who's a renowned cinematographer, who the Haywoods recruit to capture this impossible shot of the UFO. So I did see this in the movie theater, obviously. Um, And I'm so, so glad I did. Yeah. It is really just like made to be in the theater. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, before I get more into that, uh, Helen, when did you see this? And like, what were your thoughts? I saw it a couple weeks ago. I think I saw it the week that it came out. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, Alamo Draft House. Big up the Ooh, ting. Nice, um, nice. Sponsor the podcast if you're listening, bro. Sure, um, why not? <laughs> yeah, but 
No, I watched it packed theater. I was delighted. Mm. I had such a good time watching this. I was on such a high coming out of it. I kind of want to watch it again. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like I was itching to just go back and watch it again. I think I do want to watch it in IMAX though for the second. Yeah. um, For the second time. Speaking of like why it's good in a theater, I think this was shot with the intention of being enjoyed in IMAX. So that makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. I definitely think as big a screen as you can get, like this is what it's made yeah. for. It is there are so many things I think that scale does for it. Like it's mm-hmm. the landscape mm-hmm. of this Wild West in a sense. Uh it's just yeah. like it deserves to be stretched as far as it can go. And then yeah. I think the action scenes, so many of the chase sequences are so well choreographed. And then the actual horror itself of this UFO, this thing in the sky it's so like imposing in both mm-hmm. an existential and physical sense that it just yeah. is like perfect for a big screen. And also shout out to cinematographer Hoyt Van Hoytema, who I think did a really great job on. Capital. Yeah, he's it's cool because he's usually a Chris Tennant. Um, yes, yes. Uh, sorry, Chris Tennant, <laughs> Chris Nolan um, mm-hmm. collaborator. I think he did Tennant mm-hmm. and like a bunch of other of his movies. No, it was it was really cool. I think the coolest part of it because. Like you talked about the existential issue. It's the expanse, right? And mm-hmm. like I just came from like it'd been a couple months, I guess, but Utah where yeah. the expanse is so it, it I definitely felt it. Like it definitely feels very claustrophobic, which is very weird given all the space, but that is the sensation. Mm-hmm. And you get that from this too. And the funniest part, especially with something in the sky that you're watching, why please tell me why, even though I intellectually know. <laughs> that it's impossible to see more of a screen that is already in front of you. I was like peering and like craning my neck to see mm-hmm. if I could see something. It was just really fun. It was just so cool. Yeah. I think um I also want to give a shout out to Hoytema, um or Van Hoytema for I think this was um for the way that he shot it because there's a lot of night scenes. Yeah. And I think he shot it day for night, basically. It's like a infrared. I think you can use like an infrared style camera to. Oh, really? Essentially. Yeah. Cause it's, it's technically, you know, in this expanse, there's no light. Like, like if you were to step out into the desert in real life in a place like that, it's like you wouldn't really black. be able to see anything in front of yeah. you for like a yard, basically, or yeah. like a foot or so. Impossible to light that. Impossible to shoot it. It's just really, really hard. So I think what they do is they shoot it during the day with it with an infrared type camera. I think it's a RE Alexa type, and then they essentially put the filter on that shit, mm. and it looks like it's nighttime. Which that, makes that sense. way we get to see everybody because I'm sure you did. We all saw everybody's faces, which was very, very good. Mm-hmm. Um, and then half the time when we're watching TV, we're pissed about the fact that we can't see shit. Yeah, they're all technically shot at night. So, ah, yeah, yeah. interesting. Yeah, it's cool. Uh, technical insider knowledge. Just little technical. T- I think IndieWire has a whole little like um, article written about how they shot it. Nice. So we'll include that yeah. in our Substack. We'll link yeah. that. So yeah, I mean, great for the movie theater. I love that it it has the feeling of like a summer blockbuster, which is <gasps> yeah a little bit new for for Peel in a sense, like leaning into yeah. that larger scale um yeah i found it totally fun there were like maybe a couple of quibbles i guess that i i maybe could have could have been done a little bit better i think but just like Mm -hmm. on a plain surface level first of all like it's just a great addition to the genre of like the ufo thriller horror yeah category like monster thriller yeah 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 because i think I, i was trying to figure out like the last time i felt the way that i felt just the tension and the glee and the feeling of like mission that the protagonist mm-hmm. or the characters have 
Jaws and Jurassic Park. Yeah, I think, I are think the ones are... that I really kind of thought of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. good like comparable works. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I thought like there, there were like great moments of, moments of comedy. There are great moments mm-hmm. of tension. <laughs> there are even like a yep. couple of jump scares, which like I mean, I they got me, but um, nothing so yeah. scary. Again, that like people who are like me can't like nothing that that even i can't handle like by the time you realize it's happening it's kind of over yeah right just like having a little bit of fun and i also thought the ufo itself is like really interesting take on what we normally see in media which is this martian filled like flying saucer type full of these like you know otherworldly invaders who are coming to take us beam us back to their their worlds or whatever yeah um yeah this one is just like much more deliberately like biblical and like feral and like this uh yeah vast unknowable creature which yeah is like even more mysterious in a sense so i thought that was a really cool take on this genre as well yeah because it it, the whole fascination with sci-fi in general is that it's trying to say something about humanity Mm -hmm. right so the the fact that they took this ufo and applied it to humanity in the sense of our relation to beasts Mm -hmm. you know and like how we differ from beasts I thought was really cool. Mm-hmm. Like uh, I thought it was saying something really, really interesting, especially given the cold open and like that whole running undercurrent. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. I really enjoyed that linkage and you know all the depth that Jordan Peele like infuses in this film, mm. which is like in this case, I think it is still social commentary, but less like explicit and obvious compared to like Get Out, for example. This is yeah. more about like um probing at some interesting questions and topics. Like you said, yeah. our relationship with peace. And like I really enjoyed that connection between Gordy's massacre and the UFO. We see this like character Jupe who as a child believed that this murderous chimp would not hurt him. Or at least he saw yeah. he believed he saw that. And then that translates into this belief in this current day that the UFO is the same, like, obviously you can't hurt him. And then that backfires on him versus like, yeah. OJ, he has this knowledge about what it's like to work with animals and like the inherent yeah. wildness of them. So he knew how to treat this unpredictable creature with a lot more caution. And yeah, that, I thought that was just really neat. Other themes, I guess this is really pressing on is obviously the very clear theme of spectacle like from yes there the bible opening verse that mentioned spectacle to uh the haywood's instinct to capture and like capitalize on this spectacle and and jupe's attempt to do that too jordan peele's been like very clear that he is like focusing on spectacle in this film um Mm -hmm. and just like how things like this like humans we get addicted to spectacle we they they take yeah. over our attention and we gravitate toward it and we also want to exploit it and it's probably yeah. not good for us i guess yeah and it, we we are also disgusted by it mm-hmm. when we see it happening very clearly like i really you know this is a spoiler i guess there's a tmz reporter mm. or like tmz photographer or something yeah. like that that appears at the end and you can tell that as an audience, we are meant to be disgusted by the, the, the this guy is here and like an annoying little fly, yeah. you know, dressed in all black on his motorcycle is like buzzing around when they're trying to actually do something for themselves. Yeah, um, like his, we're all meant att- to be irritated by yeah, it. Yeah, like his attempt is like you know, it's not the noble attempt that we are meant to no. see the Haywoods attempt to be. Like theirs is, although yeah. maybe it stemmed originally from this desire to like make a viral video. Like what we are meant to see or understand is that 
now they have some sort of like pure mission, which is like the height yes. of cinema, the impossible shot, as they call it. Yes. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and so this movie is also very much about like movie making in a sense and like yeah. the photographic image. And, yeah. um, Richard Brody, of course, he, he honed it on this in his review. We love Richard Brody like forever. Oh my God. He he's been pissing me off this week, but we'll talk about that next <laughs> we'll week. Talk we'll about talk about it next week. week. I like him yeah. even when he's at his most curmudgeonly. So, <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. but he, he had some really good lines in his review about like, quote unquote, the inherently predatory aspect of the, f- uh, photographer's image and mm. like the, the predatory connection between viewers and consumers and yeah. how this is also like linked to exploitation, which is another big theme. Like how, yeah. Hollywood yeah. exploits everyone from like black people to children actors to like animals and mm-hmm, how mm-hmm. all of those people who are exploited like how they may go on to exploit other things whether it's stories or other yeah. creatures or it's just like this whole chain of um exploitation more or less like that Hollywood yeah. and humanity in a sense is made up of yeah i thought again this is this is spoiler territory the guy that plays a cinematographer at the end Mm -hmm. when he's trying to capture the final shot and he says like they don't deserve it yeah they don't deserve the impossible shot Mm -hmm. um i thought that was so like i thought that was a nice little cherry on the top of the whole spectacle cake that jordan peele had been like building Mm -hmm. all the way throughout the film where he was just like yeah you're not gonna see it like yeah we are capturing it but the rest of the world doesn't deserve to see it and the whole question of like who deserves to see the spectacle or who deserves to watch something like this happen it's a it's a really interesting philosophical question yeah um, which i thought was like you said like very neatly inserted in something like us i think was very clunky like super clunky Mm. um and i think he's just like figured out a way to like very you know slyly insert these things and like essentially make us think about the wider question so yeah 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 i mean i feel like there have been some complaints about this film and that like people or like viewers being like oh i needed to read like a thousand explainers to like get what's going on but you know that's funny like i've heard this thing where people have like gone to the bathroom after seeing it in the cinemas and just overhearing conversations about other people (laughs) really i don't like i don't get it i don't get it and it's like all right i don't don't know what to say about that you know i i don't know what i can say other than like it's what you make of it yeah you know yeah and i mean the film works on like purely a narrative level too even if you don't want to think about any of the this like these extra layers you can you can just have a grand old time and it's it's like high entertainment um yeah but it i mean it would be of course like encouraged for for anyone watching this like to go a little bit deeper and find all uncover all the extra layers as well because there's a lot of meaning to be you know plumbed from those depths but yeah at at the same time like you don't have to like you can you can watch whatever you want and and just have fun because it is a yeah it is like an entertaining film like a plain like narratively it's pretty simple like you Mm -hmm. it has the expected sort of i guess like series of events that happen but it's so much fun like i i can't even emphasize how much fun i had watching those same i think the main thing that people are confused by is dupe's storyline like with yeah the chimp. yeah um they don't understand the connector there and to me it was pretty clear it's like it's about taming the beast and how humanity is just like like has this hubris that is just always gonna fuck it essentially mm-hmm. like at the end of the day essentially the eeriness and like that unsettling feeling that you get from it is worth having it in the yeah movie. i mean that is i think the most unsettling part of the movie 
overall. Like there is, yeah. of course, like um, a scene in the stable with some potential aliens. Oh my god, that's, like very that, creepy. But when that started, I was like, "All right, this is what this film is." <laughs> and then when it ended, I was like, "I don't know what this film is." Like, it's, yeah, it was really cool. It was, it was a really nice cool. like playing with our expectations. Um, yeah. But yeah, like thematically as well as like just like the the sort of atmosphere, the jupe storyline and the Gordy's massacre thing that is definitely like the the sort of like pinnacle of eeriness in this film yeah i I thought it added a lot to it too i also liked the performances of course the performances were Mm -hmm. were good i think one of my quibbles that i could have with this film if any is that the characters are not really given except for jupe i guess because you see literally his childhood play out um, the yeah. characters like OJ, the Haywoods, they're not given like a whole lot of backstory or like yeah. reasons as to why the way they are. But yeah, I mean, I mean, Pe- Peel is very lucky that Kaluuya and Palmer are so good yeah. at what they do yeah. that it doesn't it doesn't like, matter you, that much. Doesn't matter. Yeah. It really doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, I I agree. I think my biggest quibble, mm-hmm. like if I was to have a critique, yeah. Um, I l- I understand the diversion into Kiki Palmer's character in the last act, but we had been following OJ this whole time, mm-hmm. and I kind of wish that we weren't then completely taken out of him for I'm gonna say like fifteen to twenty minutes. That's what it felt like anyway. I'm mm-hmm. sure it was shorter than that. Mm-hmm. I do- it was definitely shorter than that, but I kind of felt a little bit like I missed him and I wish that we had you know we we got to him a little bit faster or at least there was like a bit of a denouement where we got to see him beyond just him sitting on the horse right at the end yeah Um, as much as I thought that was a very neat like closing shot yeah very neat and like very like I think symbolically inherent to like the western Mm -hmm. um in terms of shots go I don't know. I kind of wanted them to like I wanted to hear him say something or I wanted to like spend a little bit more time with him before the film was out because I don't know I was already like emotionally attached to him and like Kiki Palmer's character even though she's fun and I guess a co-protagonist ultimately um yeah I, I don't know that was my only quibble with it which is again like so small yeah. doesn't matter don't that's actually fair, care that's fair yeah um yeah. I'm a little bit ambiguous on like the chapter format of this like how it's yeah. sort of divided yeah. into those sections with a different names um maybe could have been streamlined a little bit more agree but you know overall again i had a really fun time and i'm i'm so glad that i saw this in the theater it's definitely the most that i've enjoyed a jordan peele film in terms of pure like fun i'm a fan for life i think he's just very smart He's very creative. Yeah. He knows how to explore different things. Did you see that he tweeted? Not, he dreamt the Gordy scene, like back in 2014. Or no, something. I didn't. Yeah, I'll find it. I'll find it and I'll send it to you. But That's he funny. like dreamt about a chimp killing everyone. Oh um, my god! I mean, there was that like um, incident where like a, a pet chimp kind of ripped a woman's face off. Yeah, dude. A few yeah. years ago or something like that. Yeah, yeah. terrifying. Yeah. Yeah, dude, it happens. Are you kidding me? It happens. Like, like you really can never, even with like some sometimes dogs or like things we we assume to be our beloved pets or tame tameable. Yeah. Like, I don't know. You can never. You can never sort of know. And this is the whole fascination with like true crime documentaries in general, right? It's like, is a person capable of murder when pushed? And it's right. like, well, that's we are also beasts. <laughs> like we we forget that sometimes. Yeah. Um. But yeah, no, I I loved loved this film. I thought I it's just so good. It's yeah. just such a great time. I'm excited to watch it again. Yeah. And yeah. meanwhile, um, I think Jupe's like Wild West town 
is set to come to Universal out in Hollywood. So, yeah, <gasps> oh I guess God, like yes. next time, I don't know when it's going to be be built, but there you go. You can see the this little uh, Wild West like saloon type place. I'm going to make sure you come through and then we can go together. Okay, yeah, when you fun. move out to LA. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Meanwhile, what did you watch this week, Pellin? So um, this week I watched Belle, which you can now watch on HBO Max. This was in the movie theaters, I think, in some independent cinemas in the bicoastal cities mm-hmm. for a very short period. Earlier I this missed year. it. Yeah. But this is now on HBO Max. Uh, it is unfortunately dubbed. It's a Japanese and film, right? It's a Japanese film. Yeah, sorry. Should have said that. <laughs> okay. it is an, it's essentially an anime film that is... Uh, you know, when it was screening in the movie theaters, it was in its Japanese original with English subtitles. HBO Max has a knack for dubbing films like this. It has, I think, almost every Studio Ghibli movie and almost all of them are dubbed. Very irritating. That being said, Belle, um, I wanted to watch this back in the day because it's by a filmmaker who really revels in the animation style that he that he does and that is uh, Mamoru Hosoda this film is written and directed by him and it's produced with his creative team over at his um studio animation studio studio Chizu so Belle tells a story of Suzu a teenager who lost her mother at a very young age and shared her love of music and singing with her she enters a digital world called U, as in like the letter in the alphabet U, mm-hmm. um, and under the guise of her avatar there called Belle, she is able to sing once again because the trauma of losing her mum made her lose her voice um, and she had like anxiety attacks every time she tries. Anyway, so because of her talent, because she's so very good at singing, she becomes a celebrity within U, uh, which then spills over into the real world. They don't know who she is and because her true identity is hidden, she's able to just kind of carry on going. Um, until the, another user on you, uh, only known as like Beast or Dragon, I think in Japanese, um, appears and he shakes up the world of you and take, cause he's a bit of like an anarchist, I guess, mm-hmm. within this world and takes like Suzu slash Bell on a journey to find out who he is and try and figure out what his deal is. Cause he's just mad for no reason and trying to make sense of his anarchy. So, you watch this also on hbo max right yeah how did you feel about it like what's your main takeaway a little mixed i think i'm actually like kind of a fan of mamoru hosoda because i i mean i really liked one of his films that he did earlier wolf children which i think is just one of the best maybe animated films uh that i've seen i've seen a few other of his works as well like the girl who left through time um and i thought I was like a fan of his sort of sensibility and definitely his animation style. Mm. Um, This film, I think felt a little bit shorter for me because Mm. I don't know what it was. I I think it was the writing primarily. Right. And the, the sort of conceit itself. I think there, there are some interesting choices throughout it, especially in maybe the, the last third of the film, but overall, like I struggled a little bit, getting over my sort of not repulsion but just like finding corny uh some of the writing yeah, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and character choices yeah for sure i mean this is one of the downsides of i think watching a film like this on a tv screen the element of shock and awe that you get from the cinema screen in terms of especially the animation yeah um is taken away so then you start focusing on the things that 
like you give equal weight to certain things like the writing mm-hmm. um understandably so i get you i i think i'm a little bit mixed as well i do want to give a little bit of context for our listeners that that don't know hosoda's uh general work he essentially worked on were you a big digimon fan oh yeah and actually oh, like yeah. <laughs> at least the one digimon movie that i watch which i own on vhs from a chi- like since i was a child yeah the fucking masterpiece like dude i burnt that fucking tape through <laughs> i watched that film so many times um mm. but yeah so he he directed uh two digimon digimon adventure films um and then he was gonna go on to direct Howl's moving castle at studio ghibli oh I didn't but he know ended that. up yeah he ended up leaving the project due to creative differences he, like, he wanted to do it hayao miyazaki he's criticized him very publicly and been right. like you know i don't jive with like miyazaki's insistence on using female protagonists as like a symbol right. of like um, innocence and like purity or whatever i yeah, don't know i there's yeah. like loki some kind of like feud between them there's some shit yeah i mean it makes sense especially because he got kicked off the project um what ended up happening was he wanted to make it his own style and they and the studio was like uh no we would want you to replicate Miyazaki's style and he was like absolutely not and then left but left or got fired I'm not sure which happened first um and then anyway he went on like to make like you mentioned the girl who leapt through time um and then after setting up his own animation studio uh the aforementioned studio Chizu he made a number of films um most notably I think the Academy Award nominated Mirai um did you ever watch Mirai? No I've never seen Me it neither. actually yeah, I think I'll get around to that mm-hmm. uh, after after this. Um, so animation-wise for this film, Bell in particular, it was a collaborative effort. Bell and I think The Beast were designed by Jin Kim, a famous uh, Disney animator. And then the world of you itself um, was designed by the London architect Eric Wong, which mm. I think is really cool. It's really cool that they like bring in architects yeah. to like build houses and stuff within animation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the background work actually was by Cartoon Saloon, the Irish animation studio that did Wolfwalkers, which we talked about oh, yeah. last year. Yeah, remember Wolfwalkers? Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Essentially, like we mentioned before, I wish I saw this in a movie theater because it is astonishingly beautiful like especially Mm -hmm. the different styles of animation it's very clear on the screen the difference between like bell and the beast for example it is very leaning into like a western disney style especially the beast and then you go into the world of suzu and it's the more traditional like anime style of character work um Mm -hmm. so I, i really appreciated like how different it was the thing that I thought was fascinating and really cool was the difference between the world of you and the world of Suzu, like the real world, essentially. Mm-hmm. The, the way that like nature and technology are given equal weight. The things that we love about Miyazaki and Studio Ghibli in general is the way that it showcases nature to be this astonishing beauty and it makes the world look so green and luscious. And I think like we see that here too. But I also like that within the world of you, the way that they showcase like pixelation and like the screen kind of glitching out a little bit and and the way that they show that within mm-hmm. within the technological world was also really really creative um and i really enjoyed that too i think that was like top line that's what i like the most about this film yeah i think it is very visually beautiful and also the music is surprisingly good uh yeah. the original songs they they sound gorgeous even in this english dub i don't know about the original japanese but at least the english <laughs> version sound really nice yeah, the songs themselves are the same, the words are different. In the original Japanese version, the undubbed version, uh, Kaho Nakamura is the singer-songwriter that made the songs, like create the composer songs, sang the songs, and also she is the voice of Suzu slash Bell. Oh, mm-hmm. Yeah. 
So I agree. I think it's funny. I think Hosoda's initially wanted this to be a musical, but realize that Japanese audiences don't really do musicals like that, <laughs> um, which shout out to Japan, same. And mm-hmm. um, it's just, I think he tried to figure out a way to have that halfway point between mm-hmm. what he wanted and what the audience would want. And I think it worked. Like, the yeah, the, the musical numbers were fantastic. I really enjoyed the last song. It's it's like a really great ballad. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's, yeah, it's very ballad forward, yes. if that's your yeah. jam. Yeah, and then, then the, the person that sang... And the person that is also the voice of Suzu and Belle is uh, a newcomer, Kylie McNeil. She's like really new, like only has like 500 or so followers on on Instagram new. Uh, But she has a great voice. Um, Can't really speak to her voice acting so much. No, the voice acting was not very good. (laughs) Yeah, but I don't know whether that's just because I'm biased. Like, I've never enjoyed a dubbed anime like very very rarely do i ever watch it and like half the time it's they're they're trying to just get like famous names on there especially for the studio ghibli movies and like i'm sorry but like some american actors are not built for voice acting and that's fine you know it's okay to just have like unknowns that are really really great at voice acting yeah i mean i wish more like films may have made that casting decision like um yeah yeah (laughs) Like this film, for example, it has Manny Jacinto and and Hunter Schaefer, who yeah. are like I think like do a decent job, but not as dynamic quite as yeah. I think as trained real professional voice actors might be. There there is like a difference, you know, between voice acting and just reading lines, or voice acting yeah. and physical acting, and yeah. it's not as easy for anyone to just pick up. Yeah, no. Um, Chase Crawford is in this, which you can oh, I didn't clearly realize. tell that it's true. He's the he's the guy that plays. Is his name like Justin or Justice or some shit like that? He's the oh, he's the blonde guy in the world that the is, antagonist, yeah. ostensibly. Yeah, basically. Um, I didn't realize that. Yeah, it was funny. The guy that did the voice for the Beast, like the angry Beast voice, I yeah. thought was great. Paul I thought he Castro, was really really great. Paul Castro Jr. Shout out to Paul Castro Jr. You know what you're doing. You have a very uh, great career in anime dubbing, if that's what what you <laughs> want to be doing with your life. Um, but yeah, it's it's tough, man. Like I think I thought Manny was fine. I thought Manny was okay. I mean, the character, the character was like pretty flat. Yeah, so, quiet. You know, yeah, within yeah. those limitations, sure. Yeah, for sure. Um, so in terms of themes, which is I think where we start getting into a bit of like sticky ground. Um, the theme of real self versus online self is is i think the the more prominent one i think considering the type of film that it is which is essentially like young adult or for children or like you know just anime in general i think is quite light for the most part i think that it did the best job that it could do i'm usually pretty allergic to anything about you know the whole online self versus real self thing but i think in terms of the limitations of this world it did a pretty decent job, I think, using the reveal or like the identity of the beast slash dragon as a mirror to also how Suzu, the protagonist, um, has also kind of fashioned a character to help her cope with her own trauma. And I guess how many people find community within online spaces um, and how it can be a, a bad space, but also ultimately a positive space, depending on who's using it and um, for what intentions. Um, how, do, how did you feel about it? Because I know that like you mentioned you struggle with the writing and especially this last act yeah i think it did as admirable job as any film of trying to capture 
a bit more of like the feeling of what it is to be online and to care yeah. about what people say online about you and how like online sort of fame or influencership, how that translates to everything from like notifications to content for news cycles to mm-hmm. just like trying to reach out to someone, anybody through whatever online means, uh, live streaming or, or singing or trying to find an audience anywhere who ostensibly cares about you. I think that like those glimpses that we got, uh, especially like in the real world, how online works, I think those work pretty well. I think the world of you itself was like, I just didn't get quite how you worked logically. And like, yeah, yeah. Especially where there are instances of like danger, the, the creating the real sense of stakes, like, yeah. okay, the dragon is coming in here to disrupt a, a virtual concert, whatever, like, who cares? Yeah. Or like, yeah, um, this Justin guy threatening to reveal the identity of Suzu slash Belle. Again, yeah. it's kind of like, well, why are the stakes so high when literally you can just log off and you disappear from this world, right? Like, yeah, you yeah. Would, wouldn't you think that would be the case, right? Um, right. But I, I don't know. I, I get it. They're trying to create this different world and crying, trying to create this sense of stakes within mm-hmm. it. Uh, just didn't quite click for me and. Suzu herself as a character was also like, yeah, just a little bit too over the top for me in terms of like yeah. the 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 shyness and like the um yeah. freaking out and crying and hyperventilating and just like yeah yeah I don't know it's an okay character I wasn't like the most impressed with the way they portrayed her thought process or the yeah. reasons why her personality was like this or yeah you know as far as like online self versus real self. I think it like maybe made it halfway there for me. Yeah, no, I, I feel you. I'm I kind of agree with everything that you said. I I think the thing that annoyed me a lot was I I totally understand why we didn't see it because it kind of punctures the fantasy. Mm-hmm. But why didn't like I wanted to see Suzu singing as Belle in the real world? Like the way that I see it work is that as she talks, her voice within Belle talks. So is she just like in a room talking to herself or singing to herself? Right, like we don't get any of the mechanics of that. And yeah, like, was, yeah. <laughs> again, that is, like you said, it's part of the fantasy. But once you start thinking about like, okay, well, let's accept this like fantasy U world as real. Um, yeah. It should also translate into kind of like real world mechanisms. Yeah, because she has a tough relationship with her father. Wouldn't her father then hear her singing yeah. again and be happy that she's singing again and like right. know what she know what her daughter is up to? Do you know what yeah. I mean? Like, yeah, and that is also <laughs> not really explored at all either. Like, yeah, like we're, I guess, supposed to just like take for granted, like for more than ten years or whatever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The, the father and daughter just like don't talk to each other at all. Like, yeah, uh, and right. she's and she's so heavily invested in this stranger in a different city. Um, and like helping him heal from his trauma mm-hmm. um, and then at the end we get like the the tie the knot of the dad scene but mm-hmm. it didn't really feel rewarding or I didn't really care at that point because I, I like I wasn't told to care about it throughout the entire film yeah um, so I think that's the, annoying. yeah I totally agree with that I think like they Mamoru Hosoda like he he did a he tried at least like quite a daring thing in like bringing up the idea of like abuse and specifically like um parental abuse of like their a child yes uh in this film which is quite i don't want to say like shocking it's it's not it's a a huge tonal shift it's a tonal shift it's um daring for 
the themes that a lot of anime normally like get into like it's oh yeah yeah it like you could describe it as a it brings down the mood but deliberately Mm -hmm. of course like this is talking about traumatic and very serious and damaging stuff and yeah at least maybe you could say it raises awareness about this topic because from what i understand in japan like there are a lot of cases of abuse that yeah basically go unchecked like um like these wellness checks is that it's portrayed in the film like yeah. The wellness checks are like, oh, we can't do anything for 48 hours. And within 48 yeah. hours, as we all know, like, abuse can worsen significantly. People can die. People can get seriously injured. Yeah. Um. So, I, I mean, I guess I'd say, at the very least, it's admirable that they're using this platform and this work of art to try to raise that issue and raise awareness yeah. of this issue. But also, like, sure. at the same time, it's just, like, so kind of fantastical the way that they actually deal with abuse like yeah you're telling me you're a 17 year old girl is gonna go over to this place um to find the site of you know where these two children are in danger and to herself stand up to this like abusive father figure and just like staring at him is like enough to get that's enough yeah yeah Yeah. and then then go on to leave these two children still in that person's care and like yeah I don't know. It's a little bit, it's supposed to be a fairy tale. So it is sort of like the fairy tale light version of this. But I, if it was going to delve into like this abuse like that, I really, really wish it had sort of properly tackled it. And if this is a movie about empathy, ultimately, it cannot be empty empathy. Like empathy is, it can only take you so far. You need to actually like, you know, not to turn this into like an activism thing. You need to use that empathy for actual change um, and at least portray that in your movie so that people feel like there is worth in it, you know, and there is worth in it. Like I did feel like, oh, yeah, this taught me a lesson or like this, this did a good job of teaching the lesson of like, hey, we need to be kinder to each other. We need to understand like sometimes people rage or like are angry for reasons unbeknownst to us. And like we need to build empathy to kind of find connections. And then, you know, all of that. I get all of that. It's just that ultimately like we need to see that these kids are going to be okay <laughs> i thought that was such a good opportunity for like suzu's dad to show up and yeah help her but i just oh yeah that would have been great anyway if you're gonna get um, us the dad thing like bringing a good dad to, to bring help, it bring to help his dad. daughter yeah yeah let's see this like not just an absent father clearly um the entire film anyway <laughs> sorry um, i like no, I, I, I know i i like talking about this because i think just picking it apart helps me understand it better too um mm-hmm. the the thing that i did like mm-hmm. was the subversion of beauty and the beast as a as a like starting off point it's very clear like there's a lot of like homages to beauty and the beast in terms of scenes mm-hmm. um in terms of like the little like tchotchkes that yeah. follow him around uh within his like world of the castle essentially like again like very very deeply influenced by beauty and the beast and spe- yeah and specifically disney's beauty and the beast like, yes definitely yeah wild yeah. how much actually was like borrowed from I know. the imagery or the the vibe of that i'm honestly surprised that disney let them do this me too, um, me too. <laughs> but, but i'm glad that they did i especially like it because there's no real like stockholm syndrome shit in here so you know there's <laughs> no like um be friends with an abusive person or well, i guess there is parts of be friends with an abusive person but ultimately you find out what the actual point of that is and it is a good subversion and i do like that the inspiration is there and it, he kind of like took it and changed it to fit this kind of narrative um so shout out to that ultimately i think if you are interested in animation or you do want to see this kind of style 
on screen. I recommend it. I think it is insane how they make things look. It is wild. Like the the some of the scenes just truly took my breath away. Um, again, to the point where I wish I was in a movie theater to like really drink it up. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is a fun time. I think it's a good film to watch with young, uh, like young adults or like anywhere from the age of ten plus. So if you want to show your kids, go for it. Um, but yeah, that's that's ultimately it. Some yeah. issues, ultimately good. Yeah. yeah, and I think again, I'll just add like for a maybe more emotionally mature and I would say resonant, you know, example of Mamoru Hosoda's work, like Wolf Children. That is the yeah. film to watch. So this week for Culture Notes, we will be talking about the absolute mania that seems to be going on in Hollywood with HBO Max. So Jenny, do you want to kind of give us a brief little rundown and then we can chat about like what it all means? Yeah. So it's been like a sort of chaotic week last week for fans of HBO Max, which we all know has been like the superior streaming service up till now. Yes. Um, You know, there were early reports from The Wrap primarily saying that there are layoffs and that HBO Max was like folding and all of its like originals were going out the door. And I don't think it's been confirmed that all of that is happening, but changes are coming. So HBO Max, as you know, like HBO was acquired last year, I believe, and there Mm. is basically new management. So what they're planning to do starting in summer 2023 is they're going to combine HBO Max with Discovery Plus. Mm-hmm. And nobody is really sure what that means for like HBO Max Originals, for example, mm-hmm. for the staff, for the workers, for the creatives mm-hmm. who are putting everything into HBO Max. For subscribers, do we still get to keep all of our favorite shows and films? And is this going to change, you know, what? again has been up until now like kind of like a technically wonky often frustrating but overall as far as its archive goes like the best streaming app so i think that's kind of the gist of it and also the um new head honchos confirm like they do not want to release films straight to streaming again they they're basically reversing an earlier decision to offer original films streaming on the app like concurrently yeah. with theaters or whatever yeah so if anyone remembers i guess two years ago now two summers ago wow um, for the viewers for the audience it was fantastic because we could just watch these incredible films on our tvs for i think the honchos that wanted to make as much money as possible they were pissed and then now people are going back to movie theaters and watching films and money is being made again so now the current honchos are like, well, we never need to do that because if we just release it through theatrical release, we're going to make a lot of money. But I think the thing that made people a little bit mad <laughs> um, was the whole news of Batgirl. Um, yes. So, so Batgirl is a film that is a little bit contentious, I think, like a long difficulty of getting made. Um, and eventually got made. Um, I think they were almost done with this film. I think it was just post-production, maybe yeah. a couple of reshoots. They'd already spent like 80 or $90 million on this film, I think. Um, and because of this new management, uh, they decided that instead of just throwing it on the streaming service, they would much rather never have just the world kill it. see it. Yeah, just, we just never, we're just never going to see this film. Um, That's wild. Which is... So funny in a really not funny way. Um, just 
it's insane that you can do that. And we've heard of stuff like this being happened. We've heard of like, you know, showrunners making entire seasons of TV that never get to see the light of day. Mm. Um, we've heard of all of this. It's just, it's a DC enterprise and you'd assume that they would just throw it on the streamer because it's the lowest lift. Uh, but I think the whole question is that they make more money off of the tax write-off if they do it this way, if they just oh. kill it. Yeah. And the the thing is, unfortunately, even though like everyone's mad about it, I think ultimately the film sucks, which is why it's not actually going to see the light of day. Yeah. Fascinating. So that's kind of like what happened. And then people started noticing some shows getting taken off. A few movies, I think. What I wanted to talk to you about is like the existential question that, that this raises, which is if things disappear forever and we don't have the DVD versions of them, where like, are we ever going to see these things again? Are they just, they've just gone into the abyss and we just never see them again. And that's scary. That that to me is a problem. Like as someone that thinks archiving is something that is worthy of doing in human existence, I just find it very, very odd. Yeah, that I think we're that, just simply never going to see it again. I think that this has primarily sparked that larger question of yeah. Um, again, like once we no longer have physical objects, everything is sort of scre- streaming and subscription based. Like, what do we actually own? Yeah. And that's been a long running, I think, issue or complaint as more things go. Yeah. Digital is more things go subscription based. Like once we owned actual physical copies of, of music and movies. Yeah. And, yeah. and we could keep them how no matter what happened to various things on the internet. Um, yeah. but that's no longer the case. Like even if you purchase a film on iTunes, technically they can yank it whenever they want. Like oh, yeah. it's not yours. Um yeah. so yeah, I think people are really worried about this. They're worried about so much being lost to time and like technological things that we can't control um and a lot of these things even if we wanted to they're just not available physically on dvd or or any sort of format like even if you were like well let me just be safe and buy all physical copies of all my favorite things Mm -hmm, you're mm -hmm. gonna find so much of that is just not available so then what are we left with yeah people are saying like bring back pirating bring back whatever and right sure like that is like one option and i think that is in some of these cases probably the only option but also obviously not a very robust like long-term permanent solution for everything in the world yes yeah uh it's just really difficult we're we're in a period where basically like no one owns anything and a lot of these things are just like no one is ever going to see them again and that honestly that does happen to the majority of of creative works and things in the world in general, but it's sort of yeah. a sad reminder of our own, I guess, like obsolescence in a way. Oh, totally. It's fascinating to see how ultimately CEOs that just care about money don't give a fuck about creative work. And that is sad and depressing, but also evergreen. Yeah, um, tale as old as time. Yeah, man. Capitalism. It's terrible. Who knew? Um yeah, so that's that's the dispatch uh, from Hollywood, I guess. In the meantime, if you are watching anything that you think we should check out, please let us know at criticismisdead at gmail.com or just at us or DM us at criticismisdead, all one word, on Twitter and Instagram. For extended show notes, including links to everything that we've been talking about and more, please subscribe to criticismisdead.substack.com. As always, thank you so much for listening. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts with a clean five stars. And then tell a friend about us because we love friends of friends and all the friends. Let's all be friends. Thank you so much. We will see you next week. Bye. 
Criticism is Dead is produced by Pelin Keskin Lu and Jenny Zhijia. Our music is by Rika. Our artwork and design are by Sarah Macias and Andrew Lu.